Well, I've been asked this morning to tell stories about Dan Stromberg. I have a few of them. I do. I have a few. Um, all I can say this, I'll, I'll say a couple things about Dan. First of all, um, I love him dearly. He's been a friend for well over 30 years. Uh, he and I have served together uh, with the EFCA in uh, working with churches uh, that was going through conflicts. And uh, we would go in and help mediate conflicts between congregations and uh, the elder team and the congregation and, and whatnot. And uh, we just had a great time doing that. We learned a lot about ourselves, about uh, God's will for the church, and just helping churches uh, get along and uh, to see what the problems were and how we could come alongside and bear scripture uh, to the church. Because believe it or not, churches have troubles too. They have internal struggles. They have external struggles. As long as we are sinners <laughs> uh, in these bodies, we're going to have conflicts with others. And uh, uh, I think last time I was here, I actually spoke on conflict. But today it's going to be a little bit uh, a different emphasis. Uh, one thing about Dan and Kathy is that uh, they were with me through a very difficult time in my life, a time that I wanted to um, just kind of give up. Um, it was going through a... Uh, difficult uh, divorce and separation, and uh, Dan was there 100% of the time, 24 hours a day. Uh, he was a friend and a mentor and a discipler that I could, that I could trust and uh, uh, hold men like him in high regard. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but before we begin, let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to have a blessing on this time. Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise. We give you glory for all the things that you've done in our lives and will continue to do. I pray this morning that as we open up your word and talk about some principles of uh, discipling and modeling and mentoring, uh, that your spirit would have free reign in our hearts. Work in my heart as you already have with uh, the preparation of this. Work in the hearts of those that are here. And uh, we want to give you glory, Father. Have your work in us. Do your work today. Bless Pastor Tim and Dan as they travel back from their uh, wedding that they were in in Indiana. And uh, give them traveling mercies and, of course, look forward to having them back next week. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you'll take out your handout, there is a handout that we prepared. Uh, looks like this, a little outline of what we're doing today. And it's a fill in the blanks. This will keep us all interested and in not falling asleep during this time. Um, and I'm sure the Students over there will be going, hey, yeah, I got to get this done. Make sure I got that right one. So if I uh, go too fast, just hold your hand up. Let me know. If you miss something, let me know, and we'll do a fill in the blanks. But you'll kind of know where that is as we uh, proceed down the outline this morning. So the title is, what are you modeling in your response to people, problems, trials, and circumstances, whether good or bad? As I prepared for this talk, it, it was necessary to kind of change the wording a little bit to make it more personal. Because as I prepare, as Tim prepares or Dan prepares or any of you who are in Sunday school prepares a lesson, you know that the Holy Spirit has got to be doing work in your heart before you can actually present it. And sometimes the Lord brings circumstances into our lives that mirror exactly what we're studying. And that's something my wife and I have been going through these last couple of months. Um, and it's exciting to see what God is doing. It's exciting to see, well, it's not exciting to see what a sinner I am. Uh, I already knew that, but uh, how the Holy Spirit kind of draws to mind once in a while things that are taking place and where I'm deficient and where I need to improve. 
So I kind of changed the title of this to what am I modeling in my response to people, the problems, the trials, and circumstances, whether good or bad. The truth is we're all modeling something through our words and our actions every day of our lives. We're setting an example to our spouses, to our kids, uh, our friends, our coworkers, believers and unbelievers alike. We're demonstrating to others what's important to us by the way we spend our time and our money and the words we use. Well, conversely, we tend to live out what we've learned and heard and seen in others. We have parental influences, uh, our coworkers, church leaders, educators, mentors, people who have meant a lot to us. We kind of model what they have, what they've, uh, what we've seen in them. I want you to take a minute to reflect on the individuals who've been influential in your life. Maybe early disciplers or mentors as you became a Christian. What did they model to you? When hard times came, how did they respond? Are you closer to Christ because of the time that you spent with them? Perhaps you grew up in a home where your parents were strong believers and uh, they modeled lovingness and generosity. And when it came to boundaries and discipline, they were firm. Their example has influenced you to raise your kids in like manner. Maybe your parents were less than stellar in their child raising skills, or there was addiction in the family, or you were a victim of some type of abuse, and you have vowed never to imitate that behavior. Yet sometimes your family members or your friends, your coworkers, become recipients of your own frustrations, anger, or abusive words. So we all have been influenced by what was modeled to us, and we are modeling to others the results of that influence. The important thing for us to consider in our discussion today, and this is, I think, point one in your outline there, or number two, is that we can cognitively choose to be a model, an example, and an influencer of the one who reflects Jesus Christ, who resides in each of us. We can cognitively choose to be a model, an example, and an influencer who reflects Jesus Christ. In a sermon earlier this year, one of our pastors told us that choices matter. So what we choose to model to our family or to a watching world matters, and it makes a difference. People are looking at us. The verse that was read this morning, Matthew chapter 5, we are salt and we are light. We are cities set on a hill which cannot be hidden. People are looking to us our reaction and what we do and how we respond to difficult circumstances. So today, I simply want to define what it means to be a model or an influencer, discover what scripture says about the subject, and to consider some biblical examples of characters who modeled behavior worth emulating and some who did not. And throughout this, I have a little thing called a heart check. And basically what it is, when we come to a heart check, it's a kind of a personal application it's a time for a reflection that you can say, hmm, I wonder about that. Hmm, yeah, I'm deficient there. Or I really need God's grace on this one. Or I'm doing pretty good in this area. So it's called a heart check because it allows us to monitor our own hearts to see if we're reflecting these biblical truths. So well, what is a model? What is a model? And I thought, I'll go right to the dictionary and find out what a model is. And by the way, I'm using the um, uh, 1828 uh, Webster's Dictionary. You're going, 1828, come on, Brian, that's a long time ago. I love the English language. Dictionaries today do not seem to do 
English language justice. We get very lazy in our speech. When you look back at some of these dictionaries and what the actual words meant back then, it gives us a better indication of what it means. So that's why I'm using that one. Excuse me, I've got old eyes. Okay, 1828 dictionary, what is a model? It's a pattern or something to be made, anything of a particular form, shape, or construction intended for imitation. A mold, a pattern is an example, a standard by that which, that by which a thing is to be measured. In painting and sculpture, that which is to be copied or imitated. A pattern, anything to be imitated. A copy, representation, something made in the imitation of real life. So basically it's a pattern, something to be imitated. Architects, aircraft and automotive designers put to test their designs by building models. And after being built and tested, the models actually, or the products actually produced. Conversely, artists and sculptures create their work based on models of the human form, nature, and what they see. Fashion models, anybody seen Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris? That movie, recent movie? Oh, my wife has, yeah. <laughs> Of course, I actually saw it with her. It's kind of a chick flick, but it's it's fun. Um, fashion models show off models themselves, the product of a designer. Perhaps you used to enjoy building model airplanes or cars. What'd you do with them when they were done? Put them on the shelf and they collected dust. But they were to be displayed. You went, cool, that, I made that. And we all enjoy showing off things that we've made, products of what was in our brain, you know, right now on this thing that we built, furniture or whatever it is that we do. Um, in all of these things, models show off the work of their designer, the one who created it. Ephesians 2.10 says this, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared for us beforehand that we can walk, that we could walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. Imagine as God's handiwork, we are to move and do as he has intended. We're to copy and display the work of Christ who dwells in us. We are his workmanship. In Philippians 3, Paul invites his readers, Philippians 3, 17, he says, Brethren, follow or join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Join in following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. The word pattern is type. In junior high, I took print shop. It was a lot of fun. You know, we had this thing called the composing stick, and we would set the type into the composing stick. And so a type, that's the exact word that the Greek word is tupon or type. It's an example. It's like a typewriter guide copy or mold or pattern. And the beginning of the verse is actually one word in the Greek and it's translated imitate together or mimic. All of you should mimic my pattern of behavior. Paul tells the believers in um, 1 Corinthians 11 to be imitators of me, just as also I am of Christ. See, the Corinthians saw Paul's behavior and he pointed to Christ as his pattern for living. Finally, in Philippians 4.9, he said, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 
Jesus tells us, as we read this morning, that we are the light of the world, and we shall let our light shine so that others may see it and glorify God who is in heaven. Here's our first heart check. Whether we like it or not, we are models and we are examples and imitators. But what examples of, of behavior we are displaying when faced with difficult people and circumstances or to our kids when they rebel or we get sick or we get laid off or our candidate loses or our car breaks down again, how do we choose to respond? Are we displaying a complaining spirit? Are we, complain are we displaying patience? Are we displaying gratitude? Whatever it is, there's something for you personally to reflect on. Again, we can choose how to respond in a situation. We're not victims of our circumstance, in other words. Now, parents and grandparents, uh, you've seen this in your kids. We have a two-year-old that is living with us temporarily. And it's our grandson. And I tell you, that, that kid is full of life. Terrible twos, right? Well, have you seen what two-year-olds do? They mimic what their parents or grandparents do. I'm sitting at the table. I go like this. And he goes, happy, 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 like this. Or I'll get a broom out and start to sweep. And he starts to sweep as well. He wants to, he wants to join me in it. He mimics his dad in doing things. He mimics our facial expressions. It's really amazing. So they do watch. And they learn and they mimic what we're doing. Examples abound in scripture of people who modeled both godly and ungodly behavior. There's many examples of mentoring relationships which were beneficial for godliness and those that went south. Moses and Aaron, Paul and Timothy, Jesus and his disciples. But we're going to look at three biblical examples right now in scripture um, that uh, talk about modeling. So let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 16. 2 Samuel, chapter 16. We're going to talk about David and Shimei. Here's the background. There's turmoil in David's kingdom. His adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband has already taken place. Now, David's son Absalom wants to conspire to take over the throne. So David, as he's traveling down the road with his companions, he is accosted and physically assaulted by a member of Saul's family, this guy named Shimei. Starting in verse 5 of chapter 16 of 2 Samuel. When King David came to Barum, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul. Remember, Saul's dead. This is the relative of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. He came out cursing continually as he came, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and his left. And thus Shimei said when he cursed, get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut off his head. Yeah. <laughs> so he's traveling down the road. He's getting cursed at. He's getting rocks thrown at him. And David's 
Abishai wants to cut off his head. Well, look at David's response in verse 10. But the king said, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zariah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why, shall, why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look upon my affliction and return good to me instead of cursing this day. So David and his men went on the way, and Shimei went along the hillside parallel with him. And as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. So this whole thing continued. So David rebukes Abishai and offers a different perspective. He said that perhaps Shimei is speaking the truth. He's saying that maybe the Lord told him to do this. And perhaps there's a lesson for me in all of this. See, David's response exhibited a godly perspective. He showed he was open to criticism. He saw this as rebuke for his sins and left it in God's hands in the hope of future blessing. Here's a heart check. When you're faced with opposition or criticism, what is your response? Do you have thin skin or thick skin? When faced with someone who is vying for your job at work or takes credit for something you did or a suggestion that you made, how do you respond? And what are you modeling in your response? What about that one individual in your life, think about him or her right now, you know who it is, who is a thorn in your flesh and they continually invade your life? What do you model to her and to others with your response? See, David exhibited a godly perspective. He saw the adversity as a time to witness to Abishai, to God's grace, and to show grace and mercy to Shimei, who was cursing David. Of course, Shimei, or Jesus, sets the ultimate example. We know uh, that Jesus suffered greatly. Hebrews 12.3 says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. David had it bad. Jesus had it worse. We can model patience during difficulties. Our response to suffering should give credence to our faith. That's on your outline too. Our response to suffering should give credence to our faith. There should be no disconnect for who we claim to be and how we live out our confession. Let's look at another example. Go back to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel 2, 12 through 36. The story of Eli. Eli was a priest and a judge of Israel in the days before kings ruled. He had the dual responsibility of ministering before the Lord and sacrificial offerings. And he was ruling and judging the people of Israel. No small task. He should have been a model of grace and dignity and holiness. However, he had two obstacles. His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. How would you like to be forever 
categorized as a worthless man than somebody who did not know the Lord. There was a problem going on in Eli's ministry. He had Samuel. Samuel was the boy that uh, uh, his parents left. He was an only child, and he was left and dedicated to the Lord. Samuel kind of became his, or Eli became his discipler. He was the priest. He was the mentor, and he wanted to see this next godly generation grow up. But seemingly, he was neglecting what was going on in his old house. So what was going on was that Eli had these two sons, and they were ministering before the Lord, supposedly, but they were stealing the best of the sacrifice from, um, from the people. And they were actually taking the meat before it was cooked so they could have the nice fatty portion, which was the best part of the meat. That was supposed to go to the Lord. They were, they were taking that. They were stealing it by force. And uh, even the servants of the priest said, if you don't give me this, this meat, I'll only take it raw, then I'm going to surely take it for you by force, verses 15 and 16. So they were taking more of the offering that was allotted to them. They were stealing the best of uh, the meat. And it says in verse 17 that the boy's sin was very great before the Lord. For the men despised the offering of the Lord. Well, later in verse 22, <laughs> it gets worse. Now, Eli was very old, and he heard that all his sons were going doing in Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So are you kidding me? They were not only stealing the sacrifices of the Lord, taking more that was required of them, but they were actually having sex with the women who devoted themselves to the service of the Lord. They were using their influence and their power to take these women to bed. Well, unfortunately, we've seen quite a few of that. That hasn't changed really in 3,000 years. We still have people who take advantage of their congregation and whatnot and, um, you know, leave that to the Lord and his judgment on that. But, you know, it hasn't really changed. But they were not examples. They weren't examples of godly men. They were not role models of virtue, but rather served as models of shame to the Lord and to Eli and to all of Israel. Well, what happens? Eli confronts him, verse 23. So Eli went to them and said, why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people. No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. If a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For the Lord desired to put them to death. Well, as he confronts him, Eli could have taken steps to remove his sons from the office, but he shrunk at the opportunity. And instead, in verse 26, he turns his attention back to Samuel, who he could have he had a better influence on. So what did Eli model in this scenario? Did he model fear of doing what was right? Did he model disregard for the rights of the people and doling out the portions of meat judiciously? He was not protecting the women who served. Was he hiding behind a religious cloak? See, somewhere there was a disconnect between who he was as a priest and judge and what his sons saw him to be. In verse 29, the Lord confronts Eli. He said, why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering 
which I have commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. That was a brutal confrontation from the Lord to Eli. It's like, you know, hey, dad is so busy with the stuff going on with that little boy, uh, Samuel, he doesn't have time for us. Besides, he's getting fat from our share of sacrificial offerings. We'll just look the other way. That's what the boys may have thought. But uh, we know what happens in the next chapter or two as the ark is taken and the boys are killed. And Eli dies the same day. What about us? Are we modeling good spiritual habits? That's on your outline. Are we modeling good spiritual habits to kids? When our kids or grandkids look at us, can they honestly say that, hey, their life is consistent? There is no disconnect. Do I prioritize time with my family? Am I consistent in discipling and disciplining my kids with firmness, but with grace and love? And are you modeling being present? Are you modeling being present with your family? Or are you consistently distracted by other stuff? Can you say no to self-indulgence and instead model balance and moderation? See, choices matter. Final uh, couple I want to introduce to you again or look at is uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2. Verses 19 through 30. Philippians 2, 19 through 30. Paul writes, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for all of you and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly in order that you may see him again, and you may rejoice that I may be less concerned about you. Therefore, receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold, him like, hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Now imagine that. These two men were disciples of Paul. They served him. They served him in Philippi. They served him as he was in prison in Rome. And they were examples to the Philippians of sacrificial service. The church saw how they were models of faithful service to Paul and to the gospel. In fact, Epaphroditus became so sick, he was to the point of death in his service to the Lord. But he felt bad that the Philippians knew he was sick. <laughs> when was the last, when, I mean, if any of you have been down with COVID or whatever it was, it was, you know, it's, it's hard. And you feel bad for other people because they know that you're sick. No, we were sick in December and I wanted to die. I just, it was all about me, right? <laughs> I just want to end this thing. It's terrible. 
Um, I didn't feel bad for anybody else. I just felt bad for me. But Epaphroditus felt bad because others knew that he was sick. And so Paul's response is, hold men like him in high regard. That's the person you want to model. That's the person you want to emulate. People who almost to, you know, to death for the work of the gospel are missionaries and friends, uh, global outreach workers that are out there on the field. You want to hold people like that in high regard because they leave hearth and home to proclaim a message that is not only life-changing, but life-giving. And people are willing to die for that message. So we should hold them in high regard. So here's a heart check. Do you model such grace when you are sick or feeling bad for the ones who are caring for you instead of complaining about your own sorry state? When opportunities to serve are presented like Timothy and Epaphroditus, do you tend to make an excuse to not serve? Do you long to be a leader, yet you're unwilling to be a servant? Something to think about. Paul himself was a model of Christ-like behavior, so much so that he wanted the Philippians to mimic him. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace shall be with you. Do you have somebody in your life right now that you can say to him or her, look at me, emulate me as a disciple of Christ? Because man, Paul was being arrogant <laughs> to invite people to be like him. I don't think so. I think Paul walked so closely with Jesus that he wanted people to look at him as a model of Christ-like behavior. How we react in the face of sickness, adversity, financial trouble, marital and interpersonal conflicts, inconsiderate motorists, ooh, that's a good one, and generally anything outside of our control is a result of not only the behavior we have modeled in others, seen modeled in others, but also as a result of our walk with the Lord. That's also on your outline. How I react in the face of circumstances, good or bad, is a result of not only what I have seen modeled in others, but also a result of our walk with God and our engagement with the scriptures. Remember at the beginning, I said that we can cognitively choose to be a model, an example, and an influencer who reflects Jesus Christ who resides in each of us who believes. See, even the smallest model of behavior can influence another. I want to tell you this little story as we close this lesson out. Um, my brother and sister and I lived in a, in a home where um, it was less than stellar, as I referred to at the beginning. Uh, you know, dad had some issues and uh, mom had some disabilities and my dad took his frustration out on the kids and upon others. Well, I was the oldest, so I was the good kid, right? I, I needed to obey dad and whatever else. And my sister was the youngest and, you know, she was spoiled, but my brother was the middle child, that middle child syndrome. And my brother got fed up with what was going on in the house. And at 16 years old, he jumped on his Yamaha 250 Enduro motorcycle and left. He was gone. <laughs> And uh, my brother was um, engaging in, in behavior that, you know, 
16-year-olds engage in, 17-year-olds. Well, then he got hooked on drugs and other things and was not hanging around the best of people. Had various jobs. He had a few little criminal convictions here and there. And it just kind of kept, you know, he was like the bad kid, as it were. Well, he and I were close for, for a while, and then we kind of drifted. And he became responsible, right? He had some good jobs, uh, very successful in the sales uh, force, doing very well, and uh, got married, had a kid, and devoted his entire life to his son, Austin. Good kid, really is. And, um, but still never bowed the knee and never took care of some of the issues, issues in his life. So last November, I get a call from my brother, and he said, Brian, Austin's in the hospital. I think he had a heart attack. My nephew's 28 years old. I said, Mark, what's going on? He was a basket case. He was absolutely basket case he, because he has devoted his entire life to this young man, and now he's in the hospital. He's a single dad raising this boy, and um, we live in Colorado. And said, I, I don't know what to do. I said, well, let's pray. So he prayed, and I said, I'm coming out. He goes, don't worry about it. I've already booked you a flight. So I go out to Colorado. And he said, by the way, there's things I got to talk to you about because I, I don't know. I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready. Ready? Yeah, I think I'm ready. Okay. I think he wants to receive the Lord. So we go out there. Austin's out of the hospital. Things are better. They still haven't diagnosed what's going on. Mark is getting better. He, he's feeling better about himself and about the situation and whatnot. So we had a good weekend together. We um, go to the airport getting ready to be dropped off. We had some good talks together. And he said, Brian, I'm ready. I said, Mark, are you ready to receive Christ? He goes, yes, I'm tired of doing this on my own. I, I need change. I, I'm frustrated. I'm tired. He's, my brother's 59 years old at the time. He said, I, I, I need the Lord. Okay, let's bow in prayer. So we bowed in prayer in the car. He accepted Christ. He's crying and I'm crying. And so I get into the airport. I call a local church that I knew he was involved with or wanted to be involved with. I said, hey, can I talk to the pastor of the day? Talk to the pastor. I said, can you give my brother a call? I just led him to the Lord. And uh, within an hour, they called him. And then he calls me and says, did you just call that church? I said, yeah, I did. He said, yeah, the pastor reached out. We're having coffee tomorrow. I said, oh, that's great. Okay. So he starts to get plugged in. Well, fast forward a couple of months. My brother goes to the hospital. And he's got all kinds of issues. And my nephew, Austin, who had seen Mark's change in two months, couldn't go to the hospital because he wasn't vaccinated. He brings to my brother two things. One is a book on Ohio State football because he's Ohio State football Dada. Okay. Two is the Bible that I bought him after he became a Christian. My nephew knew exactly what my brother needed. He knew how valuable the Bible was. Even after just two months of being a Christian, my brother was modeling to him what it means to be a believer. And every time I talk to my brother, it's like, bro, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I, I got a lot of work to do. I said, my brother, you've got 59 years of sin that you're trying to clean up. Jesus has already cleared that up. You're just trying to, you know, to, to make your life better and to be an example and a model. So within a few months after that, he continues to invite people to church. My sister and her husband and my other nephew went to Colorado for an event. 
And he said, you got to go to, we're going to church. We're going to church. What? We're going to church. They go to church. And they're influenced by what is said there. And they see the change in example in that way. So all that to say is even the smallest model of behavior can influence another. It's not too late. Whether you're 12 or 15 or 59 or, or 92, we can still have an influence in the lives of another. Because we're going to be influential anyway. What influence are we having? What are we choosing? So what are you modeling? What am I modeling? Better, what or who are you a model of? We are a masterpiece of our creator, and we should model him accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we look to you as our example. You who endured so much suffering in your life, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, Jesus himself said that in this life, we will have tribulation. But you have overcome the world. And we thank you for that. Father, help us to be models of you. Help us to be excellent in our praise of you and what we tell others and how we respond to circumstances, whether good or bad. We bless your name. We thank you for the models that you set in Scripture. Help us to emulate some and disregard others. But uh, you are our joy and our strength. And uh, we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>